0: I think that if you're truly an innovator and you're truly an entrepreneur, you don't say like, oh, that's already been done before. I think that if that were the case, when Slack came out, people would have said, there's already Messenger or there's already email. You have to be open to the idea that different experiences around older technologies can literally be game changers.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin. Go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Emily, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Juven. I'm so- i
1: psyched to be on it. I'm psyched to have you. So I don't know if you've heard any of these before. I, I think you're pretty busy these days uh, at Coinbase, so I suspect not, but if you have, awesome. If you haven't, no problem. I started out the same way that I always do, which is I read your background back to you. I screw up, you tell me, then we go from there, cool? Awesome. All right, you got your uh, BA in economics from John Hopkins. Then you went to like Mason as an analyst in investment banking, spent a few years doing that. Then you went to Yahoo, kind of got into the tech scene and understood what corp dev and strategy look like, spent a couple of years there. Then you went to Wharton, which you did not overlap with Shapiro at Wharton, did you?
0: Shapiro went to HBS. I actually overlapped with him at Johns Hopkins, but I didn't know him then.
1: See, I told you I'd screw something up. So, okay, good. And then you went to Warner Bros. You were the director of biz ops and strategy there, more corporate M&A, spent a couple of years doing that. Then you ended up at LinkedIn, where you connected with Shapiro amongst many other guests that I've had on the show. And you were the VP and, and really head of Corp Dev for almost 10 years, from 2009 to 2018. Then you ended up at Coinbase. You spent your first year as the VP of business and data, then the next year as the COO, and now as the COO, and president, you also sit on the board of NASPERS and ZipRecruiter. So we already screwed one thing up. What else did I screw up?
0: I recently stepped off the board of NASPERS. It was awesome, but it was four and a half years. And so I felt like it was time to move on.
1: All right. So two two messages. <laughs> hey,
0: not, not too bad. Not too bad.
1: I've done worse. I gotta be honest. Okay. What was your first ever job where someone paid you to do something?
0: Yeah. I worked in the local Photoshop and I printed pictures. And I saw a lot of things I shouldn't have seen in those
1: pictures. (laughs) Like uh, when you say local Photoshop, this is going to date me. But when you go to a CVS and you get it printed, but there was stores dedicated just to that.
0: Yep. There was like a little photo lab there and it was a little corner store. And my friend and I worked there and we had a blast.
1: Where you bring in your like Kodak camera and then you print it out or whatever. I feel All like right.
0: there's a lot of people of this generation who literally won't even understand what we're talking about, but yes. No,
1: I <laughs> recently got photos printed from CVS. Yeah. And I was like, I can't believe I'm, I'm doing this. I know. Like, is, is this an NFT? Like, does this count? You know, like, am I bringing something from the digital world into the real world? Yeah. So anyway, so the way that I want to structure this conversation is... We could probably have two episodes on both your LinkedIn and your Coinbase experience. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on LinkedIn, and then I want to dive into Coinbase because I have unlimited questions there. One random thing that I wanted to ask before we do any of that is that someone, I think it was Jeff Wiener or Reed Hoffman said, in advising you through career decisions, figure out what your competitive advantage is. I was just curious, what do you think your competitive advantage is?
0: My competitive advantage is that I love working with founders and I bring the business operational mindset to things. And so I get energy from being around people who are much more creative and risk-taking. And so what that means is that when I do corp dev, I can immediately bond with founders When I work with Brian Armstrong, I can immediately bond with him because he will say the crazy visionary thing that I think is, oh my gosh, what is he saying? And then I take a beat and I think about it and I'm like, oh, I can actually help him do that. I can help him operationalize that. So I'm like the foil or yin and yang to the founder.
1: What do you think you're not great at?
0: What I'm not great at and what my biggest weakness is is that I'm a very sensitive person. And I've talked before about the fact that who you are and what you're made up of is foundational in some way to like what you're supposed to learn in life. For me, I was always super sensitive about criticism, about feedback or whatever. And there were some really cool moments in my career where I got incredible feedback and it pushed me and helped me turn that into an asset not a liability. So here's an example. One of my mentors is Kevin Scott. He's the CTO for Microsoft and he used to be the head of engineering for LinkedIn. And he would mentor me and he would tell me about how he was really sensitive. And I was like, you're sensitive because he's just super tough guy, right? Mm -hmm. And he was like, you know, there was this point in my career where I was doing my PhD and the other students were relentless about picking on my stuff and giving me just really harsh feedback. And I was like, am I going to let the work speak for itself or am I going to let the noises crowd out the work? And there's a point in your career where you have to like figure out which thing you're going to care more about, like the trolls or the actual work itself. I don't know. It helped me snap out of that. And so I guess what I'm getting at here is the sensitivity I think is part of my human nature, but it's Mm. the part that I can read the room well. I can really assess candidates really quickly when we're recruiting. Mm. I can develop bonds with people very quickly. And so I try to use it in a much more positive force than using it to, like, let myself wallow in self-pity if somebody gives me bad feedback.
1: Do you think it works sometimes in the inverse, too, where because you know you're so sensitive, you'll over-rotate the opposite direction? Like, especially in the workplace, people feel like, you know, sensitivity doesn't have a place in the workplace, especially if that is something that you feel or thought was a weakness for you. Do you feel like you kind of put on the tough gal act similar to how you thought Kevin might have done the same? And do you think maybe sometimes people would express the same sentiment about you that you expressed about Kevin, like kind of surprised that that lives underneath the coat of armor?
0: Totally. I don't think anybody would describe me as a touchy-feely leader now. And so I think that as you build this skill, you become kind of a warrior. I'm going to just plow forward and I'm going to be like a beast about this stuff. And so, yeah, you come into your own and you almost get to the other extreme version. So you have to kind of calibrate sometimes.
1: And do you feel like there has been moments along the way that you were vulnerable or sensitive where you got good, positive organizational feedback on? That was your cue of like, actually, this makes me a better leader. It takes those examples or check marks along the way. It has to happen, right? There's no other way for you to have that positive feedback loop.
0: Yes. So I write a weekly top of mind email to the whole company about things that are truly top of mind that I want to hit them with that message. And this summer my dad passed away and I wrote a very kind of raw personal top of mind to the company. It was unusual for me because I'm super, super private and didn't really want to do it. But there was part of me that I was like, you know what, this is going on in my life and I want to share it with the company. And I got hundreds of the most incredible notes back from employees at the company talking about how much it meant to them. And then some employees who were like, not only did it mean a lot to me, but it surprised me that you went there. And like, I really appreciate you being vulnerable for that moment.
1: And why do you think it meant a lot? you think it makes you more relatable? Like you're the, what, COO, president of Coinbase. You're everyone's boss at that point. And at some point, people want to feel that you can also feel the same pain, hurt, exhaustion, whatever that is that they also feel?
0: Yes, it creates connection. We're all going through something in our lives at any given point. And so the person you see, whether it's a business leader or a celebrity or whatever it is, is going through the same thing that you probably are.
1: Yeah, it's like, have you read Meditations? Do you know know that book where it's like the most powerful person in the world has the same fears and, well, at the time, Roman Emperor has all the same fears and insecurities that, well, you or I do. Okay, didn't expect to start there. So at LinkedIn, you were there with, uh, around employee number 400. You left around employee number 13,000. So you had quite the incredible run. I've had a lot of folks that were on that run with you on the show Mike Gamson, Shapiro, just cream of the crop leaders. Cream team. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So I guess where I wanted to start this was that you put a LinkedIn post out at some point qualifying the acquisition of LinkedIn. And what you said was, I was recently benchmarking SaaS growth to one, five and $10 billion in revenue. At the time of the Microsoft acquisition in 2016, Wall Street analysts projected that LinkedIn would hit 10 billion in revenue by 2025 or 26. LinkedIn hit this milestone in 2021, all organic growth, very little synergy acceleration and almost entirely overseen by the LinkedIn execs that have been there at the company for 10 plus years. Challenges a lot of conventional M&A wisdom. And I think what you're saying is, hey, look, this would have happened independent of the draft That was created by the Microsoft acquisition. When you say it challenges a lot of conventional wisdom.
0: I don't think I wrote that. You didn't? No. (laughs) Are you sure? Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, then my notes are wrong.
0: Yeah, it
1: does. Okay, well then let's rewind. Do you agree with that?
0: I think Microsoft did a very smart thing. They largely left LinkedIn standalone. I think that there were some synergies, but I think there was a lot of this is working. Let's just put more fuel on this and let it ride. And Mm. I think that that did really, really great things. It allowed Jeff and the team to operate largely standalone, to make independent decisions about what to invest in. So the core SaaS hiring business has been like on fire and continues to be on fire. But I think the most surprising thing about kind of getting to this path was that Marketing Solutions, which is an ad-based, you know, Mm -hmm. thing, kind of got to this level of the billions of dollars. Because I remember when we were still thinking about that strategy, about ads being a huge part of of the growth, it was kind of like, it was a hope, right? It wasn't baked in. I do think, though, in reverse, though, some of the acquisitions that LinkedIn did, I think were really, really important to paving the foundation for this. And when I think about the stuff that we did at LinkedIn It was about these incredible entrepreneurs who came in and ended up running the business lines and they've moved on. But there was Eddie Vivas who came through an acquisition of Bright. And then he's like a high school dropout serial entrepreneur. And then he ended up running the multi-billion dollar talent solutions SaaS franchise. There was another guy named Russ Glass. He came through another acquisition. He ended up running and paving the way for this marketing solutions ad business And then there was another guy, Doug Campbell-John, who ended up running, we did an acquisition for the sales solution business, the sales navigator tool. And those are the three lines of business at LinkedIn. And so the idea that we had these entrepreneurs who ended up running the business lines, I think, really helped the product roadmaps and help get things on track.
1: Dan Shapiro said that you defined corp dev at LinkedIn as a core strategic role to understand the external environment. Do you feel like that was not a core piece of the strategy at LinkedIn around the time when you joined?
0: You have to remember when I joined, I was the first corp dev hire. There was one BD person, it was a tiny company, right? So there wasn't really a perception of like, okay, we're we're gonna have this really in-depth analysis of the competitive landscape in the market. Mm -hmm. It just didn't exist at that time. So I think what Dan's getting at here, which I think is, is the core of like how you want to build out a corp dev team, and it, it'll be different for different companies, is you can have a very execution-oriented corp dev team. And if you look at the very large companies, they're very, very oriented around transaction execution, right? There's like a handoff, and there's a baton, and there's a playbook, and whatever it is. CorpDev at LinkedIn was different in the sense that we kind of tried to build a really, really strong muscle around competitive insights. And so every meeting with the executive team, when we went through these things, we're looking at what is happening around us and what can we glean from that? Mm. And that might be that our customers are starting to buy this other tool and that tool just raised around and that tool is oriented around recruiting CRM and we never knew what recruiting CRM could be or whatever it is. You shouldn't over-index on what your competitors are doing, but it is a very healthy mindset to understand why companies are taking off and what about their products are resonating with customers, because it means that you can hold key insights for your own product. That's what I thought we really brought to the table better than most dev teams at the time.
1: Makes total sense. You mentioned earlier on the love spending time around founders and entrepreneurs. I've heard you say this a bunch before and it rings really true with me too. Like I get it. There's an allure to spending time with someone trying to create the future and crazy enough to do it. I think that is... A good place that I want to live in my professional career is around that spirit. You also said something really interesting and not to get ahead of ourselves on the Coinbase stuff, but in an interview that you gave on stage somewhere, and again, I hope I'm not continuing to misattribute all these things to you, but you said that the entrepreneurs in the crypto ecosystem, you have a particular affinity for, and it's a different muscle for you that you're really enjoying because the founders there have already made so much money on crypto. And so there's this underlying or underpinning of negotiations that you can kind of move past when it comes to the financial aspect of the deal, because it matters less than the mission and moving that mission forward. Again, not to put words in your mouth, but just expand on that, please.
0: Yeah. And that's not to say, you know, a deal price doesn't matter. I think that crypto is this unusual thing where Chris Dixon often talks about in social media, the growth and engagement happened. And then the monetization happened later in crypto. It turned out the monetization happened very early in the evolution of the space, right? And there's a lot of ways for crypto entrepreneurs to really bet on things and make a lot of money. And so we meet with crypto entrepreneurs. The thing that really resonates with me is like when I meet them and I see that they're almost entirely focused on the mission-oriented parts of their business and our business. Mm they're so focused on, is there alignment with that? And you kind of almost jump to that and what that means for the integration plan before you even talk about the deal price. And it's kind of this really nice, refreshing thing. We had a CTO here who was acquired, his name was Balaji Srinivasan. We acquired his company Earn and he was here for some time and we worked so well together. And he always said, he's like, whenever you hire or acquire, make sure it's a missionary, not a mercenary. When I meet with these founders and they're like super mission aligned, it's just I feel so excited about the fit that will happen.
1: I couldn't agree more. Two thoughts. One, Balaji, and I can't even believe I'm admitting this, but he gave a Tim Ferriss interview or something that was so well articulated that I made an uncomfortably big bet on crypto because I was like, I get it. This is the first time where I get it so clearly So anyway, uh, this is not investment advice
0: being around him and in his orbit and you get to be exposed to his ideas. You're like, oh, like it's just, it's a gift enough to just be a friend of his, right. Or to work with him.
1: Yeah, totally. I feel like I'm a friend of his just listening to that podcast. And then the other thing that you mentioned around the compensation piece, I think hiring, you could pull on a similar thread. So like I just hired someone, he's an absolute superstar. And it was an almost two-year process of getting to know each other and then really six months of earnestly talking about where he might be a fit and if there's a spot there. It took until the last week for us to get to the compensation part of that discussion. And that's when I knew there was just a very natural fit is an overused word, but it was a very natural fit for us. And I knew, I just had a good feeling that we were in it for the right reasons. Yeah, And that made me wanna make the compensation, no matter what, work really well. So I thought it was an interesting strategy or or approach or the way it developed, I guess.
0: You can feel it when somebody is in it for the actual job and for the, the fit that they feel with you. It's just the best feeling.
1: Yeah, and by the way, they end up making more money in the long run, whoever it is, that company, that entrepreneur, that employee, because they're gonna do a great job and you know it. And when they do a great job, they're gonna be rewarded for that.
0: vehemently agree.
1: Yeah, okay, we're gonna get to Coinbase in a second, but one of your favorite interview questions that you all like to ask, I think it's, it's at Coinbase, but that you're kind of, that you like to qualify if someone is in it for, again, kind of the right reasons that they have the right alignment and disruptors mentality is what's a company that you admire? I was going to ask you, what is a company that you admire or two companies?
0: I deeply admire Amazon because I think that Bezos in so many ways pioneered this idea of long-term, long-term, long-term. And he did that with his investors, his customers, everything. So it was about customer first, play the long game. I don't care about quarterly earnings. We're building a company for the future. It's always day one. Taking insane risks on businesses like AWS, which made no actual coherent sense to invest in at the time. Mm. You just have to admire everything that he did there.
1: Yeah. His go-to is like, I'm willing to be misunderstood longer than pretty much anybody.
0: Yeah. And that's a very brave, lonely kind of place to be.
1: And I'm putting you on the spot here. So take your time and I set you up for this, but if you were at Amazon running M&A, what is a company that you would buy? Ooh. Um, totally putting you on the spot.
0: Yeah. So here's the, the funny thing. I'm actually gonna do something funny. I don't think Amazon's history has shown that their innovation has been outward. I think their innovation has been largely organic. Mm. So one of the things about corp dev you have to do is like, you have to look honestly at a company. And this is what I tell founders all the time when like, they're like, oh, I want to hire a head of corp dev. Who should I hire? And I'm like, do you really want a head of corp dev? Because most companies actually don't like to acquire for a whole slew of reasons. They think they can build it better, whatever it is. Amazon has largely proven this to be true. Now they've had some good acquisitions for sure. But if you look at their core businesses, Mm. they're largely organic. So I would say, keep doing what you're doing. Amazon.
1: No spot for you. There's what you're saying. You're, well, there,
0: there's some, I mean, like, listen, like I think Whole Foods is a great one, but I don't think of them as a heavy M&A company.
1: Does your brain work that way where you see companies and you're like, oh man, I would love to sit in the seat running M&A there because I think I could roll up these three companies. It would be like, when you see companies, when you talk to founders, big or small, does that happen in your, in your mind where you're, you get excited about what could be
0: Yes. And or I'm kind of like, there's some companies where they literally have not done one acquisition and they're large and they have great market caps. And you're kind of like thinking, wow, you must have like a really good plan for organic growth over the longer term that you're not actively doing any M&A right now.
1: You're saying companies that produce some of our phones and headphones that have very, very, very big balance sheets and a lot of dry powder.
0: Yes. You're sitting on so much cash. Like, great. You must have a plan. That's great. Like I admire Apple. I admire these other companies, but I'm like, wow, like I'm surprised you don't want to do more.
1: I just want one time where you thought I would buy this company if I was working at this company. I just want to know if there's one that you think about or you go back to or Sometimes you wish you could do the integration because it gets you so excited. I don't know. And maybe I'm over dramatizing Emily's brain in a way that it doesn't actually work that way.
0: Honestly, and this is going to sound like I'm Making this up, but because I worked in the media industry at Warner Brothers, there was a point at which I was like, my friend was at Comcast at the time. I'm from Philly, so that's why she was there. But I was like, why aren't you guys buying Netflix? And she was like, have you seen the numbers? They're just like tiny. And I worked at MySpace when it was the dominant for my MBA summer internship. And Facebook was like going like this, right? But it was tiny. And it was growing from a very small base, but the growth attributes were just incredibly compelling. And so when I see this, I have this pattern recognition now of people who think starting from a small base at a high growth rate doesn't yield a very large TAM over time and a large business Mm. over time. And so that's where like, I just, I specifically remember that thing where I was like, I think Netflix could be big though. Like I do. I think that Comcast or somebody should buy that.
1: And at the time when you were at Warner Bros, was Netflix still doing... DVD or was it digital at that point? Was it all online?
0: It was the hybrid.
1: Got it. Thank you for that. I didn't know where that was going to go. Okay. After almost 10 years at LinkedIn, and this really resonated with me, the decision-making criteria that you had was more of a gut feel. And that gut feel, if I could quantify it, was that you said you weren't learning enough. That's generally the gut feel that I have. That's my measuring stick of when it's time to go. What was that feeling like? Can you describe what that feeling was and was it gradual or was it sudden?
0: It was gradual. I love LinkedIn. And just to back up for a second, you talked about how I started my career in Silicon Valley at Yahoo. Those two years were the best experience in my career because I got exposed to people like Jeff Wiener early in their career, and I could see that they were going to be so important in the building of the Valley. And so when I reached out to Jeff. I, I joined LinkedIn and it was just the best, coolest thing to be a part of because I loved the product. It was so incredible working with that team and learning so much from Jeff and from Reed and some others like Kevin Scott and others. I think there was just this point where, so there were a bunch of external things happening where there were, for whatever reason, at the time that I started talking to Coinbase, there were 10 different other opportunities coming up in corp dev. And that's an unusual thing because most people stay in their corp dev career forever. So if you look at the patterns of Facebook and these other companies, most of those people stay in those corp dev jobs forever because it just Mm. becomes whatever. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm getting all these opportunities at this one point, like this is the time at which I decide whether or not I should actually move on because you don't pick if you just have one. I met Brian and I had tingles down my spine and the stuff that he was talking about felt like it was the next technology frontier. And then when I hearkened back to like what I was learning at LinkedIn, I was like, okay, what is my career upside. I don't think I'm going to go further here because there's an exec team. Corp dev is not on the exec team here. Could I take something else or I could take maybe BD or whatever? It just, the structures were not in place where I felt like there was going to be other opportunities for me to grow and expand and learn. Mm -hmm. And so I joined Coinbase. It was a lateral move. It was VP corp dev worked my ass off and quickly took on more and more responsibility. And so it felt like such a validation. Cause like the second I got there, I was like, Oh, every day is a learning curve that is so steep. Mm. And I think that you have to just know if that's for you or not.
1: You mentioned something in passing. You don't pick if you have just one opportunity. What do you mean by that?
0: Maybe there's a company that you're like, okay, this is the company that I want to work for. And if I get this opportunity, I'm doing it. For me, there wasn't this thing where I was like, okay, there's this one company I want to work for. So then My friend from A16Z came in and he's like, I have four opportunities within the portfolio that would kill for your expertise. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I think Coinbase is the only one I want to talk about. And that was the point at which I was like, oh, I actually think that's a really interesting opportunity because if I go to another company that's like LinkedIn, I'll do the same motions. I'll have the same learnings. It's not going to be as interesting. So it was nice having the comparative data.
1: Yeah. You have benchmarks for like, if you date the first person you've ever met, well, you don't really know what great looks like. Okay, so you joined Coinbase, and I wanna go through this timeline because it's important. You joined Coinbase in March of 2018, if I'm not mistaken. I imagine those conversations started well before then. I don't think it started in February. I imagine it started probably sometime in October, November. For this level, it's a six month plus courting process. Yep. So at the time, around the December timeframe, the price of Bitcoin was around $12,000, okay? And I think this is really important to frame up this decision, putting myself in your shoes. And by the way, the price of Bitcoin is quite tightly correlated to the value of Coinbase. So it's at 12,000, which was like the peak. And then when you joined in March, it was at 8,500. So through your recruitment process with Brian, it lost 30% of its value-ish. Six months after that. So you take this leap of faith. You have this really nice cushy job at LinkedIn that you've been at for eight years, okay? You take a lateral on the bet that the equity and the upward mobility of this company is gonna be worth your bet, right? Similar to the way that I imagine you pitch companies that you've bought at Coinbase. And six months later, it's at 3,000. Lost 60 to 70% more of its value. Completely craters. That was in August-ish, I think your first six months there, yep. what the hell was going through your mind? And were you ready for that? And did you make a deal with yourself? It doesn't matter. I'm doing this for me. Or I don't know, just tell me like, what is this raw emotions like?
0: Totally. So you've captured, I think, the essence of what it is like to be an employee at a crypto company. And (laughs) and I think that I was super naive. I didn't understand any of this going into it. And I think that if I had understood it, I probably wouldn't have accepted the offer so quickly because you're right, LinkedIn was super stable and Microsoft stock was going through the roof. And so it was just a guaranteed compensation scheme versus Coinbase. I had no idea what I was getting into with that. And I think that (laughs) the thing that I have learned from this is that you have to have a long-term disposition if you're going to be in crypto. You have to be cool with volatility. You have to be cool with, I remember the COO at the time and I were presenting at this major VC event. And I remember one of the most famous VCs in the world was like looking at his phone, laughing at the price of Bitcoin and just like completely scoffing at our story and in disbelief that we were even participating in this thing. And you have to be cool with people like, you work where? You talk a lot about grit and resilience. You come out really strong after these moments. What got me through that is like the old time crypto nerds like Bology and Brian and Dan Romero and these other people, they love those periods. They love it because they think everybody who's a faker gets out of the space. They love a crypto winter. They're like, come on, bring it on. Great. More time for us to just build and focus. So I learned a lot from that, having been through that. That was a long freaking winter, but yeah, I don't know. It was just call it naivete that ended up resulting in some grit for me.
1: You join the team and then you got to like recruit people, right? Yeah. My thought again, like putting myself in your shoes is shit. Because it's funny, like as a consumer, like just Joe Jubin, you know, everyone's talking about crypto right now when it's over 50K, Bitcoin's over 50K, right? And then all of a sudden, no one wants to talk about it when it's going through the winter because if you talk about it, then you're believing in something that's wrong or whatever, right? Like you're a little bit of a contrarian in that regard. No one wants to do that. How did you think about the recruitment of your first six months? You need a team. You're ready to go. And the foundation of what you just joined is rockier than you thought
0: you know, I was heading up the business team. The first person I wanted to recruit was this guy named Max Bransberg. Jeff Wiener and I had been trying to recruit him at LinkedIn. And then he and I met up. Well, I had accepted my offer in December and then stayed at LinkedIn to finish my term through March. And I was like, Max, you're coming over with me. Like, you got to work at Coinbase with me. And Max was at Google at the time. And he was like, I'm willing to take a shot on this because I think that crypto could be the next big thing. He was a key hire, and he Mm -hmm. crushed it in corp dev at Coinbase, and then he ended up taking on the role, heading up retail product, which is our our biggest product. There was an existing head of BizOps who was amazing, and then he ended up moving into a product role. There was a guy I recruited from Google X who ran BizOps for Google X to run BizOps. So you have to find people who are willing to take on a lot of risk. One of the things I say now, you know, our chief product officer came from Google, but he had an interesting signal in his LinkedIn profile, which is he went to Flipkart. He went from Google to Flipkart. In general, if a person has been at a Google or a Facebook for their entire career, they're not going to move. And we talk to those candidates all the time. And then at the last moment, it's fine. It's not for them to take on massive amounts of risk at a Coinbase. That's what I meant about When I ask people what other companies they'd be excited by, there have been legit candidates who have been like, I would work at IBM. I know they're not going to be a fit at Coinbase. There are people who are like, "Uh, SpaceX, I know they will be a fit for Coinbase. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to kind of figure out who's right for the company because you want people who are willing to look at the long-term and take long-term risk.
1: 100%. And for the audience listening that may not have heard of Coinbase until now, what does Coinbase do in 30 seconds?
0: Coinbase is a crypto brokerage exchange and custodian. We believe that there are multiple phases of crypto and our product strategy is basically focused on crypto as an investment, then crypto as a new form of financial institution, and then crypto as a new form of app store. And so we have an array of products. The the core ones that we make money on today are the brokerage exchange and custodian. And then over time, we're investing in things like Coinbase Wallet and other Parts of the ecosystem, including Coinbase Cloud, which offers developer services and products.
1: IPO'd in April of 2021, it was ludicrous. $86 billion IPO, or what it popped to, down to $51 billion now. This company, if you just evaluate it as a company, not as a crypto company, the numbers are unbelievable. (laughs) I poured through the S1 in anticipation of this. And I've always just thought of Coinbase as a proxy for crypto, not really as a company, if that makes sense. And I started just examining it as a company. And like assets in the system have jumped 432% at the time of the S1. Revenue year over year is jumping in the like 500 to 1000% year over year range, depending on when you look at it. And then to boot, Less than 5% of revenue is spent on sales and marketing. So if you create an independent equation from company and crypto, which is really impossible to do, but if you did, you'd be like, oh my God, this is, this is a whale.
0: It's the funniest thing to me. We don't mind having to prove ourselves time and time again. Brian wrote this post to the company is like, we're not looking at the stock price we're always gonna be somewhat misunderstood. You see this today, and you'll see this in the next crypto winter. You'll see people saying like, see, I told you crypto was not a thing. And then you'll see crypto rise again. And and so I think the company is truly like a once in a lifetime generational company. Brian saw early that crypto was gonna be a big thing. He started with a simple Bitcoin wallet. He focused on user experience, he focused on security, and he focused on regulatory. And so did Fred Erson, the co-founder. And those are the things that we keep repeating over and over again. Now, the thing that about our business that is hard for people to grok is crypto goes in cycles. So we look at things over a multi-year period. We do not look at things over a quarterly period. And so that is hard for people to grok, that there could be a, a year where revenue dips. If you look at the longer-term trajectory, we feel totally confident that over time it kind of goes mm. like this. But if you don't have that disposition, it's not the right company for you to invest in. And so we only want long-term investors to be in the company.
1: What you just said got me thinking about this. Whenever I check my, is this a product decision? Whenever I check my Coinbase account, if I go to E-Trade, it's very clear my asset appreciation or depreciation that I can filter by day, month, year, whatever. I know how much I've made or lost. It is not easy to do that in Coinbase. Is that by design? I don't know why I just asked you that. But do you do that because you're trying to encourage the right set of behavior and the right set of people in this behavior, treating it less like a speculative asset and more like a currency?
0: We have some work to do on the portfolio management side of the house and just showing the different cuts of this. But crypto is unlike anything you've ever seen. So even like the idea that it's 24-7 markets. It's like different than- Or in know. a
1: day, you could lose like 12% or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I wasn't sure if that was a bug or a feature. I honestly wasn't. Okay. So you've used, which is, I think, a beautiful analogy. And I think the easiest way for me to understand it and maybe the audience is comparing it to the trends that we've seen come along, like the tech trends and, and the other eras of innovation. Use the phone analogy, which is one that I really like. Which phone- the obvious easy answer for you to would be to say like the prehistoric phones because you work at Coinbase and you think we have a long run. But are we like on the Sidekick phone that flips out and like it's your first browser? Or are we on like the Nokia before that where one is ABC and there was a little bit of internet, but really not really? Or are we still on like the hotel phone that only works from lobby to the rooms?
0: I'm thinking like the Michael Douglas phone on the beach in Wall Street, which... <laughs> For those who understand reference, <laughs> a huge clunky mobile phone, but it looked baller back in the day.
1: Right. Are you supposed to say that? No, no,
0: no, no. L- listen, one thing you learn if you're kind of in this for the long run is like, you should never oversell anything. It's honestly just not the way we do business. But I think when you think about this stuff, it's just people don't remember that really great user experience doesn't come until you've been through A big chunk of the cycle. And I think that we see all the virtues that crypto offers, right? With things like there's no intermediary and there's 24 seven and there's token systems. And and Chris Dixon and Brian Armstrong have been talking a lot about this lately. When you see all this stuff that's happening with Facebook, imagine a world where tokens incentivize the folks who are actually contributing value to the platform so that, that the incentives are more in line than they were historically, all that kind of stuff that hasn't been organized in some easy-to-use way yet. And there's scary stuff, too. Like, self-custody is, is a huge thing because you want to own your private keys. But if you are the only holder of your private keys, that's scary for most people because what if they don't remember those private keys? Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot to be done. And I th- again, I think that the value of Coinbase is that very early on, our founders recognized that ease of use was going to be an important thing. So when we think about what's happening in the ecosystem, whether it's with DeFi or NFTs or whatever it is, the way Coinbase is going to think about that when we're exposing that to our 60 million plus users is we're going to think about how do we make sure we abstract away the complexity and make it as easy to use as possible. And that's hard to do. So I think we're in very, very, very early innings of what crypto is going to be.
1: Can I share a personal story? This is very different from crypto, but when I first joined Kleiner, I pitched the partnership on this podcast And they said, aren't we at peak podcast? Haven't we saturated the podcast market? And I said, I still think we're in the black and white era of podcasting. And they said, why do you say that? And I said, we're still doing RSS feeds in the podcast. RSS feeds on the internet predated Facebook. And so I was trying to give them an analogy of like the internet And I'm like, forget about Netflix. Forget about like DVDs. I don't even think we've gotten off black and white set-top boxes yet.
0: I think that if you're truly an innovator and you're truly an entrepreneur, you don't say like, oh, that's already been done before. I think that if that were the case, when Slack came out, people would have said, well, there's already Messenger or there's already email. You have to be open to the idea that different experiences around older technologies can literally be game changers.
1: I totally agree. So you've also said that volatility is a feature, not a bug. I love that expression. Let's pick that apart a little bit. So you all take a transaction fee. On average, it's about 57 bips, half a percent at the S1 timing. And I I might be wrong there. So the editors can correct me there. That pricing has a lot built into it. It's not just transaction fees, like it has custody and all the things that you've vertically integrated within your marketplace. And the bears would say, downward volatility isn't good over a sustained period of time because, well, you're taking a slice off of, if the Bitcoin price is 10,000 or 2,000, you get a bigger slice of the pie on 10,000 than 2,000. And then the other thing that they would say is that, And again, this is from your S1, 96% of revenue in 2020 came from transaction fees. And right now there's a lot of hype, especially because the analogy or the metaphor that they would use is look what Robinhood did to the traditional finance industry, right? They did zero fees on regular trades and now everyone else has gone to zero fees, So then I started digging into more like, oh, Emily has to have a take on this somewhere. And the analogy that you said, not in reference to this, but that you've used was Adobe. Do you know what I'm talking about? I thought that was like a really nice parallel. So anyway, that was really long-winded. Go ahead. yeah No,
0: yeah. I love that you've nerded out on all of our stuff. That that makes me super happy, actually. Okay, so a few things. Volatility is good for us on the upward or downward because what it means is that even if people are selling there's a transaction component to that. Okay. And I think that when you look at the history of our revenue, the transaction fees unto themselves have been able to fund a very long term business. So you can scoff at them and say, oh, they're based on the market or whatever. And but they do fund the business and they help allow us to invest in all the future revenue streams. So We are investing much in the way that the foundational Google business then invested in a bunch of other things like YouTube and other adjacent things. We are using that to fund these these new business lines, right? And so we have three customer constituents, the retail customers, the institutional customers, and the developer customers. On the retail side, the whole name of the game is how do we become the primary financial profile in the crypto economy, So you may come in and do a transaction fee with us through buying or selling Bitcoin. That might be your first entry point into Coinbase. But over time, we're going to start exposing you to more assets. We're going to start exposing you to more crypto-first features. Staking is a great example of that. So maybe you're going to say, oh, I'm buying my Bitcoin. I'm kind of new, but it looks interesting. This ETH2 staking looks interesting to me. And that's a new revenue stream for us. And we exposed you to that because you created your primary financial account in the crypto economy on Coinbase. So Mm -hmm. that's how we build out that revenue stream. And that includes multiple different assets and multiple different other features that we expose you to that are beyond the transactional that you get just from buying or selling Bitcoin or something like that. On the institutional side, perhaps you, Mr. Hedge Fund, want to make some large trades and that's your first entry point into us. So we're going to do those trades for you. Yep, transactional revenue, you're right. However, we're also going to say, Jubin, we have the strongest best crypto custody in the world we want to offer that service to you and we get an asset under custody fee that we get and that's a recurring revenue fee a la a subscription we might say jubin we're going to want to offer lending or borrowing so that you can actually create a revenue stream from the assets that you're holding on coinbase that's Mm -hmm. another revenue stream On the Coinbase cloud side, we have developer tools for folks who want to build on the crypto infrastructure. Again, you can imagine AWS like revenue stream there. So what does this all mean? And this is what you said at the end, which is Henry Ellenbogen talks about like companies having multiple acts, right? So Netflix back in the day, Reed Hastings said, I know that there's a need for DVDs and I'll make it super easy, but I know the future is digital Mm. content Mm. and there's going to be a second act in our future. He saw that and he started with the DVDs and the other. Adobe had a great business, but there was a point at which they recognized that their core business was not going to be the thing that took them to the next act. Mm. And for them, they invested heavily in a subscription business. Well, we all know how that ended with Adobe because they've just crushed it, right? Mm. And so in the same way, that's why we're using the profits that we have today from the core transactional business to invest in these future acts for the company.
1: And would you say, bringing it back to your early comment about companies that you admire, why Amazon is at the top of that list? Because they've had so many acts, right? First it was books, then it was Kindle, then AWS, which is now going to be probably the biggest product line that they have, the largest revenue stream, certainly on gross margins. Is that why you admire that?
0: A hundred percent. It's like they keep going and they keep going in directions that aren't always totally intuitive. You have to have a high tolerance for failure. And the other thing is you have to have a propensity to be willing to do multiple different products, which is what Coinbase is all about.
1: When you talk to a wealth manager and you ask them, like my mother and every other person right now is doing, should I put my money in crypto, in Bitcoin, in Ethereum, whatever, the general advice still is put 5% in and just be ready to lose it. Put enough in where it wouldn't bother you if it goes to zero. That's like the general still like advice. And I hope we look back on this episode in 10 years together and maybe laugh. We will. But yeah. do you give that pitch to prospective employees? Hey, look, this could go to zero.
0: I don't I don't give the pitch that it could go to zero. Okay. I give the pitch that if you look at the different cycles of crypto, every time there's gonna be a crypto summer and winter. And the thing that you have to know about the crypto winters is that each time, if you look at the history of Bitcoin, the trough is higher each time. And so that's what folks have to be comfortable with. There are Coinbase employees who get a hundred percent of their compensation in Bitcoin. That was extraordinarily smart to do when Bitcoin was three or four thousand. And like mm. I still think it's frankly very smart to do at the current price, because I think if you look at over the long term, it's mm. great. But everybody's gonna have their own risk tolerance. And I think that somebody once said to me, the reason real estate is such a great performing investment is because people are forced to hold it. The thing with crypto is people get nervous. They become Mm -hmm. nervous Nellies when they see all the volatility. And so they, I find that it's better to just buy it and hold it and just not get too worried about the little blips.
1: So you said once you've weathered a crypto winter, you're kind of ready for anything. And it obviously screams every theme of this show, resilience and grit and all these others. I guess two questions. One, Do you screen for pre-existing resilience and grit in someone before they join, knowing that this is something that they're going to have to endure? I'll pause after question one. Go ahead.
0: Absolutely. So we have a presentation part of our interviews. So after you've made it through the panel and you're going through finals, the final piece of that is a presentation. The first question I ask on any of those presentations with the prompt, and they prepare a deck for this is tell me about a time that you've shown greater resilience in your personal or professional life. We've had a wide array of answers on that. And you can really feel whether or not somebody has the disposition to kind of take on a challenge and be okay when they're bucking the trend and they're a contrarian. There's just certain people where you just feel it. And there are certain people where you don't feel it.
1: What's the best presentation you've ever seen? Does one stand out when you think back?
0: Yes. There's one person who just crushed it on a presentation, and the things that she did in that presentation were that she took everything that we were doing, and she had just done so much research, and you could just feel her energy about what she was going to do and how she was going to execute on things. I think that like for the resilience one, one of the things that stands out to me is there was a woman who presented about a time in her life when like something happened to her dog and her husband went into rehab the same day, and like she was faced with taking care of her child and going to work the next day and putting on a brave face. And- I was so moved that she was willing to kind of put herself out there and be vulnerable in front of a panel of people that she didn't know well. And so it just, it was a really nice thing. And I, I always remember that one.
1: Really cool. In your remit today as president is a big part of what you do internal resilience, building culture. Like, is that a big part of your job today? Because Brian is quite technical in nature and, and a visionary and you're more of the tactician. is that a fair characterization?
0: Totally. But I'll tell you a little secret. Like founders are obsessed with performance and the chief people officers of any of these companies are probably like, oh, we're going to have to revamp performance again. Performance is such an incredibly important part of the way that we do things. And Brian cares deeply about that. So in many ways, I'm operationalizing ideas that he cares deeply about. Totally. And so, yeah, this morning we had resilience training and that was something that was super important. We don't try to do a lot of learning and development because we we want to make sure folks are working. But that's part of what I was saying about like the top of mind. I send a note with things that are top of mind to me. Like for example, last week there was this guy, former employee of Coinbase who wrote me this note and it was this really nice note and he was like, "You gave me some harsh feedback a while back that I didn't understand how to scale." In a large team, and that, like, I was having challenges with that. And I didn't want to hear that feedback at the time. And now I'm at this other company and I'm having the same challenges. And so, like, I just appreciate that you said that to me, even though I didn't want to hear it at the moment. And so, I shared that note, not, you know, anonymously with the company, because I think there are things like feedback that we're not all super comfortable with. And you want to start making sure that you're instilling norms in the culture, especially because we're 100% remote first. How do we get those messages across? about the things that we really care about as an exec team to all the employees over and over again. That's one of the modes that we do that.
1: Can I ask you about a specific thing that came from Brian that I imagine was put on your plate around the execution? And by the way, I think it was at the time and still to this day, one of the coolest things that I've seen a company do. And one of the reasons why I was like, if I were to ever go somewhere, I would go to Coinbase because like they're standing up for what they believe in. And I'm not just saying that to flatter you now or the organization, but it was around when things were getting and still are probably very political within Silicon Valley companies. And ultimately, the stand that Brian took was like, look, people are in Slack. It's very divisive. There's just no place for that in the workplace. And we want to be mission oriented towards solving the problems that we're trying to solve ultimately for the financial ecosystem of the world, not for... Republican or Democrat, whatever it is. So he said, here's a very, very generous compensation package. If you want to leave, no problem at all. We're going to take care of you on the way out. All this backlash, all this stuff, ultimately, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think about 5% of the organization left. And the backlash at the time was there was going to be diversity and all the things, all the, pick your buzzword of things, why people are going to backlash today. And in reflection- Brian now said a year later, and I'm going to pick two tweets out of his tweet thread because I thought they were the most powerful. This is in in response to his decision now reflecting. In fact, I would say it was probably the most positive reaction I've gotten from any change I've made in the history of the company, which is saying something. How could something be so negative in the press but turn out to be incredibly positive with every stakeholder? The only sense that I can make of it is there's a huge mismatch between people's stated and revealed preferences right now, and we're operating in an environment of virtue signaling and fear of speaking up this is a public company CEO saying this. Yeah, you know. do not see that very often. And by the way, I'm asking you, cause like you probably bore some of the brunt of executing this vision. Right. Tell me the backstory from your perspective. Give me your thoughts, whatever.
0: Yeah, you know, the thing with Brian is, like I said, he comes up with these ideas that many times I will think, what is he talking about? Even <laughs> remote first, remote first seems so obvious now. He said this way before COVID. And he's like, we're going to go remote first. We're going to operate in the cloud. And I was like, okay, okay. But that it made perfect sense at some point. And so that's the beauty of our relationship. It may take some cycles for me to understand something. But he had been talking about this for a while. He had been talking about wanting to have an apolitical culture. And I think if you think about it, Juven, it's, it's just one of those things where you've seen this in your own family, like trying to have a debate about a candidate or a political issue in your family, let alone your company, is just like, it's a kind of just dumb thing to do because you're not going to influence anybody. You're only going to reinforce this stuff with people who share the same opinion with you. And so we were really concerned. We've seen this at a bunch of companies that this distracts from the core mission. And he brought up this idea. The exec team largely agreed, but we didn't know if it was the right time to kind of pull the bandaid off. And Brian said something to me that I, I think is very true. He was like, this is going to be the moment where we don't want to look back when there's a hundred thousand employees and say, we wished we had done it at this point. And I think that that's the case for any of these hard things you have to do. We did it. As you mentioned, 5% of the company left. I feel so good about where this landed to. I feel like it's so clear to anybody who's coming in from the outside, what we're about. It's clear to our employees, what we're about. And so we're not misrepresenting anything about what our employment brand is. And so it's, it's great for people like you who really, you're like, yes, that's what I want. I want to mm-hmm. be at a company like that. It's not great for people who want to have active political discussions at work. And so I feel like either way, it's a win-win. And I think the point you made about us treating people beautifully on the way out, like, I think everybody who left during that time would tell you they felt great about the way that they left. And Mm -hmm. so it felt like a really, really good outcome for the company.
1: Yeah. And it's a kind of a beachhead of value statement that you can always reference back to. And I think it's like a, a rallying cry. Mike Gamson shared the story of when he had a rep, and this is a much smaller example, but he had a rep on his team that was the number one rep, but violated some of their values as an organization, some of LinkedIn's values. Number one rep. 11 weeks in, let him go. And throughout his tenure at LinkedIn, that always came up again as a shining example of what we stand for, independent of anything else going on in our external environment. This reminded me of that.
0: Yes, exactly. Always be true to your values and your values may be different than than in other companies and that's okay.
1: So the other thing that I saw, like, and by the way, in the S1, regulatory risk is a prominent theme throughout it. And recently you were on whatever news station talking about how the recent administration is hurting the crypto ecosystem by not allowing innovation and whatever it is. Right. Brian, Brian, came after them again. And I was like, kind of sat in my chair reading this. I was like, he just came after big, big government institutions straight up said, like, am I mischaracterizing? Flat out told him you are wrong. And here's why. And we've been trying to work with you for eight years. We've done nothing wrong. All we want to do is cooperatively shape policy because we believe that this could be America's next bastion of great innovation that we saw from the technology community in the Bay Area. We think we have that chance again. And you're screwing it up. Like, that was basically the message that he sent. Again, like, you're the president and COO of this company. I know you agree with him, but does that ever... Create a little bit of anxiety for you. I don't. I don't know. I th- again. I think it's so cool. I
0: have anxiety all the time. <laughs> I, I think that the thing that I really admire about Brian is that he always insists that he be authentic, and so he did not want to have a bunch of backdoor conversations that where he couldn't also communicate to the world what we're experiencing because. We just want an even playing field, right? We just want clarity on regulation. Coinbase is no stranger to regulatory. We've leaned into regulatory. We have a large team. The way that we operate, everything about it is is about how do we remain in compliance with laws? But what you have right now is just complete regulatory uncertainty, right? And you have different groups claiming authority over crypto, if you look at our biggest competitors in the world, they're not operating out of the United States for a reason. And I think that that's what we're, we're just trying to point this out. And one of the things I think that is good about Coinbase is we have a bunch of lawyers. We have a bunch of really, we're well-resourced. We want to make sure that if we're experiencing this, that if other crypto companies are experiencing this, that we can kind of make sure we raise a light to it so that we get clarity. Mm. And so it wasn't meant to be this incendiary thing. It was meant to say like, hey, If we can't get clarity, probably nobody else is getting clarity and it's, we deserve it because we're paying a lot of taxes and we want to make sure that we're operating in a way that we feel like is fair and transparent.
1: I think it's uh, really fair. Okay. You've never done COO or president jobs before. Far from it. You're in corp dev. Looking back now, telling Emily of three years ago, what she could be doing to prepare. What are the things that you wish you had done? some muscles that you wish you had started to build, some strengths or skills that you feel like were early stumbling blocks for you in this new, broader role?
0: Honestly, chuben I feel so fortunate that I worked with Jeff Weiner because he's kind of like, to me, the pinnacle of operational perfection mm-hmm. in the way that he operated. And so a lot of the tools that I came with, I learned from him. Now, that's not to say that I didn't make a ton of mistakes, but I think that there are certain things that when you're scaling, you look back at the things that you learned from having been at LinkedIn during that period of hyperscale, and you see what breaks down. People used to be able to ask Brian questions in the hall and get a decision in the hallway. When you triple, quadruple headcount in a year, they can no longer get those answers. So how do you create a decision-making framework? We implemented Rapids, which is a Jeff Wiener Bain legacy kind of thing. So a lot of the constructs, like my whole thing is, I told you before, like I love being around really smart people. And so I soaked that up and hopefully I've applied a lot of those things to what, and and I think that's why I got elevated to this role because Brian and, and other folks saw that like I was thinking about those things and I was trying to get ahead of them as we scaled.
1: Totally. Okay, I have, I have five minutes. I want to ask you about Coinbase Ventures because this might be the piece of this story that I'm most interested in, which is that this thing started where when you came in, talk about like preparing for the future, you told Brian, I think we should do investments. Like we are in pole position to be able to create an ecosystem of innovation through capital. And he said, I've been thinking about the same thing. You said, great, what should I do? He said, write a blog post. You wrote a blog post, he approved it, you put it out that day, you said, now what? He said, well, let's get to work, right? Like, let's start investing. So from that point, Coinbase Ventures has done over 200 investments. This year, you have the second largest number of investments of any venture firm in the world, 79 to this point, you'll probably get to well over 100 by the time the year is over. If I'm not mistaken, which I can't believe I'm saying this, there's no investors, there's no specific people that are dedicated to investing. There is no fund. This is all done off of your balance sheet. Is this all right? First of all,
0: this is all right. Yeah. I'm so proud of this because I feel like this was so in the model of let's just completely think about what our own competitive advantages are and how we want to be rather than the way the traditional venture capital system exists. Right. If you look at the top venture capital firms. They have super heavy infrastructure. They have a zillion LPs. They have a lot. And that's fine. Like, I think that works for a lot of them. That's how you raise a large fund. For us, the thing I was thinking, of, okay, we don't have a lot of resources. We got to be scrappy. We think that this could be huge. So we want to blanket the crypto ecosystem because we want to both support the crypto ecosystem as well as have a stake in these amazing companies as they pop up. Mm. We have all these amazing relationships in the crypto ecosystem because who, of who we are, our alumni and just all of our connections. So, like, how can we uniquely do all this? Well, turns out there's a handful of really smart, hardworking people at the company who want to do this nights and weekends. This is a labor of love for them. It's totally decentralized. Crypto, by its very nature, is a decentralized phenomenon. It's not a highly centralized thing. It's one of those things where, okay, so this team just works on this in their free nights and weekends. And we make investments in some of the best companies. I mean, we were in OpenSea very early on. We were in Bison Trails, which we ended up acquiring.
1: Kleiner Company. Thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a great one. There's so many interesting companies that we got into. And when I park back to like being at Yahoo or if you think about Google in the earlier years, if they could have had a stake in Facebook and YouTube and all these other companies at the time, early in their life cycle because of these new technology trends, that would have been a no-brainer. And that's how I felt about this.
1: Yep. And at the time of the S1, there's over a billion dollars on the balance sheet. It's probably twice that now. I'm just making numbers up, but it's it's probably more given the price of crypto. So the comment that you made about there's companies that have a lot of dry powder that I'm surprised haven't been more acquisitive. Is this not to say like you guys have not only invested, but bought a shitload of companies. But is this your way of using your dry powder in an interesting and unique way? Maybe not necessarily to make the big splashy acquisition, but more so. Well, I'll let you say it. But is this one way of your approach of using billions of dollars on the balance sheet and this really, really high market cap to do interesting things?
0: We are very pro M&A and we're very pro ventures. So we don't look at them as you take a a zero sum game of you take a dollar from my ventures budget. I'm going to put it towards M&A. It's a yes. And when we when we think about the different things that we're doing. So we've done a bunch of M&A. And we're going to continue to do a bunch of M&A. That team has grown from one person to 20-plus people. And if you think about we're the number one regulated crypto custodian in the world, that came from the Zappo acquisition two years ago. Tagomi is our prime brokerage play that is basically our institutional interface. So all of this has come from outside innovation as well as inside innovation. Ventures to me is about taking bets on plays that might not be near term adjacencies, but are like, we think they're just incredible ideas. And sometimes there are areas where we're not going to play in that, but we want to support that company and those amazing founders. And we think it's great for the crypto ecosystem. And sometimes it's like, you know what, someday we might want to do that. And it's a great company and those are great founders and we want to support them and we want to make sure we stay close to them in case we ever want to acquire them someday.
1: I've had a lot of cool guests on the show. I've had a lot of cool responsibilities and jobs on the show. This is right up there with the coolest. So thank you for your time. I always end the same way. The first question, what does grit mean to you?
0: It means that everything in your life is a learning experience. And that if you push through and do the hard thing, you will come up so much stronger. Maybe you don't want to give the hard feedback. Maybe you don't want to give the hard performance review. Maybe you just screwed up a project. It means that you learned something from that and came out stronger because of it.
1: Are you hiring? What are you hiring for? Any key roles that you want to shout out? And what's the best way to get a hold of you?
0: We are hiring like crazy and we have a zillion incredible roles at the company. The areas that we need to really grow as fast as possible are obviously on the engineering side of the house. And so that's a a huge thing. And I think that, for many engineers, if they want to work on new frontier technology and learning about blockchains and things like that, I think Coinbase on crypto projects is one of the best places for them to work. To get in touch with us, in general, we get a lot of contact. And so to be totally honest with you, we really like when there's a referral in common or something when it's like, oh, I can vouch for this person. They're amazing. That kind of thing, especially for those key roles. It's just it's a helpful data signal for us.
1: Awesome. Emily. Thank you for your time.
0: Jubin. it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.